Job chapter 2, starting at verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor entered into any of the months. Ian's going to come and give us a talk now. Well, good afternoon again. It's good to be back with you. And uh, continuing on with Job. It's good to see you came in, in spite of the One Direction. That was, uh, <laughs> that was good. I want to tell you something that uh, my grandfather said to me many years ago. Um, I was only 14 when my grandfather died, so he said it to me prior to that, obviously. He said this, If you have five friends, you have more than most. Say it again. If you have five friends, you have more than most. When I ask you, how many friends do you have? Not acquaintances, not Facebook friends, not uh, people you know. People you know who will stick with you no matter what happens. My mother's in her 80s and she met a group of five girls, four of whom are still alive, on her first day at kindergarten. And they still meet every month. It's pretty amazing. How many friends do you have? I want to say to you, when you get to my stage of life, that if you actually start to distill those who are real friends and those who are just acquaintances, and I didn't realise it when my grandfather said it, but now I know it to be true, if you have five you have more than most. But I guess how many friends that you have is something you can't really control. So here's the better question and the more important question. To how many people are you a friend? Now you can control that. To how many people are you a friend? Three? Five? To include your siblings? Uh, will you include your, your spouse when you're married? To how many people are you a friend? Well, 
We're going to look today at Job's friends. We met one of them last week and that was his wife um, who in Job chapter 2 verse 9, if you were here last week, you remember that she was just nagging in his ear all the time, curse God and die, curse God and die and I don't think I'm going to include his wife as one of his friends. In fact, uh, I'm glad I haven't got a wife like Mrs. Nagalot. Uh, but we see we've met three other friends uh, and we're going to cover about 30 chapters of Job in about 30 minutes. Okay, so hold on to your seats. We, we're going to look at three friends who we just read about to introduce them. Firstly, there's Eliphaz. Uh, secondly, there's Bildad. I'm sure you've heard the, heard the old joke about the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the shoe height. That's right, Bildad, Eliphaz, and, yes, yeah, very corny, and, and Zophar. They're called Job's comforters, and you probably know that expression of a Job's comforter in English, because that's the sort of friend that you have who actually gets everything wrong, and that's what these guys do as well. And so we open chapter 2 of Job, and we see this horrendous picture of Job and his three, three, three friends come to see him and they don't even recognise him. He's emaciated, he's covered in sores, he's covered in boils, there's maggots we read that are eating their way through the infections and then we read that for seven days and seven nights, silence falls. Now this is not really relevant to the passage but I actually reckon this is about the only place where they get it right. Uh, I want to say to you just as an aside that sometimes when people are going through really tough times silence is a much more soothing balm than noise. And it's actually a sign I think of being a really close friend that you can actually sit there and you don't feel that you have to say anything. Seven days, seven nights, we read, not a word is said. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 3, and Job opens his mouth and he says this. He says, Let the day on which I was born and the night they said a son is born perish. A man is conceived, let that day perish. He actually ends up in an absolute pit of self-pity. He's in, the, in an absolute morass of how he feels. In fact, if we read through the book, and let me tell you, if you've been here last week and you're going to be here next week, here's some, something good to do. You don't have to do it, but it'll be a great thing to do. Read through the whole book, all 42 chapters. It's, it's Hebrew poetry, and it kind of says the same thing again and again and again. And as you read through the book, you see that, Job talks and talks and talks and talks and you get to the point and you think will you be quiet because he never stops justifying himself he never stops saying I'm okay he listened to this in 326 I'm not at ease nor am I quiet I have no rest but trouble comes he talks and talks and then the talk breaks. And then we see Eliphaz talks, then Bildad talks, 
Then Zophar talks and he talks and talks and talks and they come back in. He talks and talks and talks and talks and they come back in. Now, many of you, probably most of you, are here at the university training for ministry in different areas of God's world. Some of you will be caring for the sick. Some of you will be teaching the young. Some of you will be helping people wrestle through terrible things that they've been through and seeking to be counsel to them. Some of you will be in the business world and you'll be with people who are going through financial collapse. All of you will be in situations where you need to provide comfort to those who are suffering. All of you will be in situations where you can be a friend. So let's look at these three guys. I'm going to start with Eliphaz and then I'm going to go to Bildad and then Zophar. Eliphaz, we read in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, is actually a generation older than Job. He's old enough to be Job's father. And yet, despite his grey hair, he lacks wisdom. He basically says, I've lived a long life and I know what things are like from experience. He's the guy for whom experience is his authority. And so he comes to Job and just picture him. He's got grey hair, he's a bit stooped, he's an old man and he's got a very soft, gentle, old man voice and he tries to comfort Job but the problem is his premise is all wrong. Here's his premise. Small sin leads to small suffering. Great sin leads to great suffering. If you've lost all your sheep and your camels and your goats and your children and you are covered in boils, that is great sin and therefore great suffering. Chapter 4 verse 6, listen to him. Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, says Eliphaz, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where, he says, were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plough in iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. How many of you from the country? Anyone come from outside of Sydney here? Surely someone outside of Sydney. Anyone off a farm? No one off a farm. Really? Wow. Okay, there we go. Well, let me tell you what farms are like, okay? <laughs> you people who think that things come from supermarkets. It's really simple. You get barley, a little bit of barley, and that's, it's not an island, it's a seed, and you, you put it in your hand and you actually plant it in the ground. The sun comes out, the rain comes down, and what happens to the barley? It grows and six months later, what do you reap? Barley. Get some wheat, same drill. Put it into the ground, six months later, what do you reap? Wheat. Let's apply it. This is what Eliphaz is saying. If you're reaping trouble, what did you sow? You sowed trouble. A man reaps what he sows. He says, 
The problem with you, Job, is you've done something wrong and that's why you're in this situation. Now, if you were here last week, you will know that that situation is absolutely laughable. Why is Job suffering? Because he's reaped trouble? No, because he's blameless, upright, turns away from evil and fears God. That's why he's suffering. His premise is absolutely wrong. And so from this wrong premise, he says, as for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Repent, Job. See where you've gone wrong and then the suffering will cease. Now, sadly, there are too many churches out there that should be called St. Eliphaz. There are too many places out there where people think that bad things happen to bad people. When I uh, finished theological college, quite a few years ago now, I went to the country. It's a world on the other side of the Great Dividing Range. (laughs) To a small country town, and I was the minister of a town called Griffith. I'm sure you know where it is. And in that town, there's quite a few churches, as in most country towns, and there was a lady called Dulcie. Dulcie was in her mid-30s. She had four small kids, very close together, and she came to Bible study at our house every Thursday morning. There was a ladies' Bible study, but she didn't go to our church. That was okay. She went to another church in the town, but she just, for whatever reason, happened to come to our Bible study. During our time in Griffith, Dulcie, in her 30s, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Four small kids. Her church put on a healing service for her. That's fine. No problem. God is the God of healing. We should pray. And so we we prayed that God would heal Dulcie. The problem was, a few weeks after the healing service, with further tests, The cancer had metastasized and it got into her bones. The minister of that church had only one of two possibilities. Either the healing service hadn't worked or there was a problem in Dulcie. He went for option two. And he said to Dulcie, the problem is there is unrepented sin in your life. That's why God is not healing you. Remember Dulcie in tears saying to me, I couldn't believe it, I was so angry, trying not to show it. That's what he said to me and I looked and I looked and I recognised that I had resentment towards my mother-in-law. Now, I knew Dulcie's mother-in-law, she was a lovely lady. I don't think there was a problem, but anyhow, that's what she thought. She had gone to her mother-in-law and she had confessed her resentment and sought forgiveness. And do you know what happened in the next time she went to the doctor? The cancer had spread again. I remember visiting Dulcie just before she died. A lady in her mid-thirties, four small kids, a Christian lady, but because she was a member of St Eliphaz Church, there was no comfort from the Gospel for Dulcie. She wasn't just a lady who was riddled with cancer. When she died, she was riddled with guilt. And it is the teaching of the Satan that is coming through here. That's what he's saying. Bad things happen to bad people. But if you read Job chapter 1, you'll know that bad things happen to people who are upright, blameless, who fear God, 
and who turn away from evil. I mean, the irony of it is it's awful. I mean, Job says, tell me where I've gone wrong. We know he's not perfect, but he has offered sacrifice. He has been forgiven. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. You see, when I think of the close friends in my life, and I think of people like close friends and my family, my wife, parents, siblings, children, I'll tell you one thing that they all have in common, and I have common with all of them. I have apologised to every single one of them. Because true friendship is built on forgiveness. True friendship is built on grace. But but Job, do, uh, sorry, but Eliphaz doesn't understand that. Eliphaz thinks it's rewards and retribution for behaviour. That's not how I work with my friends. Maybe you're here today and you're just looking into Christianity. You don't call yourself a Christian. That's great you're here. Maybe you are a Christian. It's true for all of us. True relationships are built on forgiveness. Relationships that are built on goodness are at best acquaintances and the gospel is about forgiveness. See, our problem is this. Our problem is that we think, and this is so true of 21st century Australians, I include myself, we think that suffering is more odious than sin. We actually sin to avoid suffering. I can confess to you that I have told lies so that I will not suffer. All of us have known what it means to cut corners and to cheat, to abuse power, to abuse people so that we will not suffer because we think deep down that suffering is more odious than sin. But I want to say to you that the clear message of the Bible is that sin is more odious than suffering. Much more odious. Uh, Has anyone here had their house burgled? I have. Have you had someone break into your house? Yes? Come home, it's all been a big mess. How did you feel? I'll tell you how I felt. Absolutely violated. Someone had gone through my house and they had gone through every drawer, they would overturned everything, everything that I have they knew and I felt violated. Let me ask you a question, if you've been burgled or even if you haven't. Would you rather be burgled or would you rather be a burglar? I'll tell you what, I can answer that really clearly. I'd rather be burgled. I'd rather suffer than sin. Sadly, we we know of abuse in lots of situations, great abuse and lesser abuse, abuse of power, abuse of situation. If you're the innocent victim of abuse, which we all have been in some degree, and hear that again, the innocent victim of abuse, would you rather be the one who is abused or the abuser, the sinful person? It's hard to say with the enormous pain. But you know what? I'd even rather be murdered than be the murderer. I actually think that sin is at the root cause 
and give me a choice between being burgled and being a burglar and I'd rather be burgled any day. Sin is more odious than suffering. And when we work that out, then we recognise that at the core of all relationship, at the core of all friendships, is the fact that sin can be forgiven. My time as a parish minister over many years, I've counselled people in some pretty murky situations. And let me tell you, you don't have to wait very long until something uh, shows on the dashboard. Suffering or they get upset for something, but there's, there's something underneath. And I'll tell you what's underneath. It's guilt. It's guilt that plagues us. Solve the guilt and you normally solve the problem. Eliphaz knows none of that. Job is forgiven. I I couldn't think of anything worse than to go through life being unforgiven. Whether it's my relationship with God, my relationship with my family, my relationship with my friends, my relationship with my siblings, I couldn't think of anything worse than going through life with people holding resentment against me. But Job is blameless. And so Eliphaz comes along and he says, much sin produces much suffering and you look at the book and remember we're seeing the whole perspective and we say, Eliphaz, you've got it wrong. The wicked prosper, righteous people suffer, God has his purposes in this, but please, please, remember Dulcie, do not draw a line. Sin is not always the cause of suffering. But suffering is always an opportunity to vindicate God by how you respond, whether yours or somebody else's suffering. Let's now go to Bildad. Bildad the Shuhite. And Bildad is here, and unlike Eliphaz, who's into experience, Bildad is a traditionalist. Uh, He could say, as it was in the beginning, so now and forevermore, amen. Nothing ever changes. Uh, Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, and he says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. And so after a long-winded self-justification of Job, he's gone on for a few chapters, you can read about it during the week. Chapter 8, verses 2 to 4, he says this, How long will you say these things and the word of your mouth be a great wind? And if you're reading through Job, you may feel the same by that point as well. But then he goes on to say, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Wow. I certainly hope he's not enrolled in social work at this university. If your children have sinned, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. Remember back to chapter 1, Job doesn't just go and make sacrifice for himself. He habitually, we read last week, goes and makes sacrifice for his children. God works in families that the children might also stand under the covenant mercies of God. Verses 5 to 7, chapter 8. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, 
If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Isn't that ironic? Chapter 8 verse 7, Though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. I've heard that before last week. Bildad is actually speaking like Satan. Do you remember what Satan said last week? Satan said, uh, Job doesn't love you, God. You've put a hedge around him. He's not interested in putting his hand in your hand. He's only interested in what in, is in your hands. He's only interested in the things and the prosperity. That's what he's really interested in. Listen to what Bildad says. Okay, it's pretty tough at the moment. Though your days are small, if you repent, your later days will be great. In other words, he'll start putting things back into your hand. Now we know, we'll see next week, the end of Job is a magnificent, one of the most magnificent parts of Scripture of the glory of God. And Job does receive prosperity from God. But he doesn't repent or he doesn't continue to vindicate God in order to gain prosperity. There may be blessings that come and Bildad those saying, if you trust God, then though your beginnings are small, though your end will be great. Why does God allow suffering then? Why is there this suffering? Why is Job going through this situation? It's an opportunity to show the glory of God. It's an opportunity to vindicate God. It's an opportunity for Job to show his mettle in terms of one who is a true follower of God. Uh, Listen to John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they find a man who is blind. And his disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See the relationship again? They assume that someone's born blind either because he sinned or his parents sinned. Jesus' answer is this. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's the Christian answer to suffering. Why are you suffering? That the works of God might be displayed in you. There is not always a relationship from sin to suffering, but there is always a relationship from suffering to the opportunity to vindicate God. How do you get on with your siblings? Imagine if your siblings, if your brothers in particular, one day took you out to the road and bashed you up and sold you into slavery. How do you feel towards your brothers? And imagine when you got to slavery in another country, you actually as a slave, you were sold into a household, let's sell you to a man by the name of Potiphar, for a word of a name. And Potiphar has a wife, and you're a good looking bloke, and she's a good looking lady, and Potiphar's away on a trip, you know who this guy is? He's Joseph in the Old Testament, that's right. And here we are, and Potiphar's wife says, come to bed with me, Joseph. And you are righteous. You do not sleep with another man's wife. You do the right thing. 
And because you do the right thing, what happens? You get thrown into prison and you languish for years and years. I was in Egypt last year where this happened. And let me tell you, Egypt, I mean, an Egyptian jail, I reckon, would be pretty, pretty basic. I hate to think what an Egyptian jail would have been like three and a half thousand years ago. And that's where you are. And a couple of decades later, you then meet your siblings again. What are you going to say to them after all that suffering? Listen to what Joseph said. He meets his brothers and says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph suffered terribly, but if you know the story of Genesis, when we get to the end of it, all the people of Israel and the covenant purposes of God are actually kept alive through Joseph's suffering. His suffering is an opportunity to vindicate God. Paul puts it this way, all things work together for good for those who love God and accord according to his purposes. Not good things, all things. Finally, we come to Zophar. Firstly, we had the guys into experience. Secondly, we've got the traditionalist. Well, Zophar is the rationalist. He's doing a philosophy major. He's into uh, things need to be rational and they need to make common sense. He's into syllogisms and he is really, he's very high in his IQ and he absolutely has no EQ at all. He has no relational skills at all. Uh, in fact, Atkinson, in his commentary on Job, says of Zophar, he is rather a nasty piece of work. He goes on and says, Zophar is high on the list of those without whom we could happily live if we never saw them again. <laughs> An insolent, intellectual prig. He was one of those tiresome people, probably just out of college, who know everything. So that's Zophar. Listen to Zophar. Zophar says it's simple logic. It's quite simple. He doesn't mince his words. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 12, if you want to follow. He says this, Can you find out the deep things of God? Makes sense. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? And listen to this. Here's his logic. For he knows worthless men, in brackets like you, Job. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man like you, Job, will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Which is kind of Hebrew for saying when pigs fly. Okay? He's actually working from the same premise. It's logic, Job. Can't you see it? A wild donkey's colt will be born a man before you see it. Bad people have bad things happen to them. He says in 11 verse 6, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. How could you ever say that to Job? 
Listen, Job, you're actually getting it pretty good. If you knew how great your sin was, God would have done worse to you. I scratch my head when I read that bit and I think, what could God do that was worse? What could? And of course, it's not God. It's the Satan. And of course, God is in control. But it's an opportunity to vindicate God. Calvin says of this guy, some comforters have but one song to sing and they have no regard for to whom they sing it. I work at a theological college training people for ministry and let me tell you, Zophar would never pass the subject of pastoral skills. (laughs) I want to say to you that we've been talking a lot about suffering in Job and Job is about suffering. But I don't think it's primarily about suffering. I think suffering is the number two thing that Job is about. I think that Job is primarily about wisdom. And wisdom is applied knowledge. You can have a straight HDs in every subject and have enormous knowledge and have a lack of wisdom. Wisdom is about how to live with the things that we know. And with the things that we know, how do you intend to live today? Because I'm sure in this room, of this many people, some of you are suffering some pretty terrible things. Or if it's not you, and I'm sure we're all in this boat, we all know someone else who's suffering. And that also presents an opportunity to respond to somebody else's suffering in how we comfort them. How wise will you be in your words and in your actions as you respond to suffering? The one thing that Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar had in common is that they drew a relationship from sin to suffering. Now, yes, we all live in a sinful world and therefore we all suffer, but that's the end of the line. Individual sin does not necessarily result in suffering. Sometimes people like Job sow righteousness but reap suffering. And so Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are wrong. They say, when were the upright cut off? And I'll tell you when an upright man was cut off. It wasn't just Job. It was Jesus who spent his life in active obedience to God and that is what led to his suffering. They say, who being innocent ever suffered? And I'll give you an answer. It's Jesus. Listen how the writer of the Hebrews does it. This is an amazing passage, Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. But listen to this bit. Although he was a son, was Jesus perfectly obedient? Listen to this. He learnt obedience. You can actually learn obedience even though you're perfectly obedient, it says, through what he suffered. Jesus being scorned by his friends and ultimately crucified on a cross was always an opportunity to vindicate God. And being, was Jesus perfect? Absolutely. But listen to this, Hebrews 9. 
and being made perfect. Not that he wasn't perfect before. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. And we are called, and Jesus' perfection there is in terms of him completing the work that God had given him to do. It doesn't mean he was disobedient, but he still learnt obedience. It wasn't, he was, it wasn't that he was imperfect, no, but he was even perfected. I'm sorry for all the English people here, English students here, but he became more perfect through suffering. And so do we. It's an opportunity to vindicate God. It's an opportunity for applied wisdom. So I'll finish by just asking you a question. It's a question that comes from the Reformation. It's the beginning of one of the famous catechisms of the Reformation. You know, there's Anglican catechisms and there's Presbyterian catechisms and there's Baptist catechisms out there and they're all good, but this is one of my favourite. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism and it's used in the Dutch Reformed Church. The words are there in your outline. It starts with this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Now, don't look at the answer. I want you to answer the question now in your head. What is your only comfort in life and in death? If you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Now, let's look at the answer from the Catechism that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Saviour Jesus Christ, who has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and therefore by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. If you can truly answer that way, then God will use you to his glory when suffering comes. Thanks, Ian. Instead of drawing a line of causality between sin and suffering, um, how about we mourn with those who mourn and we're going to pray now. So if Kate and Nick are going to pray for us. We're going to pray for those who suffer and grieve and I don't know what your particular situation is and with what kind of lightness or heaviness of heart you come here today, but God does and we're going to pray to him now. Father, we look at this broken and crooked world and we long for things to be different, for death to be no more, for cancer, for chronic illness, for natural disasters and terrible accidents to be gone. Lord, we long for a world without divorce, without the breakdown of families and marriages, without the hurt and the pain that these cause. Lord, we pray for those um, whose families have been touched by divorce. Lord, be with them. Father, we also pray for those who are grieving, who have lost a loved one and seen through this only only too closely the brokenness of the world. Lord, we pray for them in their pain. We pray for them as the grief goes on month after month and year after year, as life goes on but they do not forget. Lord, 
we know that you do not forget them. You do not cease to love or to comfort. Help those who grieve to know this very, very deeply. Father, make our hearts right before you. It is so easy to become muddled in our thinking on this question of suffering, to become people who are either angry or bitter, who shake our fists at you and ask questions of entitlement. How could you let this happen? Or, Lord, who become people like Job's friends, who find simplistic answers, who look to easy parallels and easy consequences. Lord, to think that we understand everything and that we don't dwell in a world of mystery. Help us, even in our saddest and darkest times, to trust that you are good and faithful and that you care for us. And finally, Lord, we pray for those who are experiencing great suffering now, immediately today, who have just lost someone they loved, who have just had terrible news, who through accident or illness or relationship breakdown or any number of things have reason today to weep and to mourn. Lord, may they do so confident in the knowledge that they don't dishonour you by weeping. May there be people around them to love them, to listen and to care. And mostly, Lord, comfort them with the knowledge that you are a good God who have yourself wept and bled and who loves. And that one day you will wipe away every tear and will raise people to life again. And that at the last day you will right this crooked world and make it good once more. Until that day we trust in your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen. Please continue praying with me. Father, one day we will see a new world where there is no suffering, no pain, no war. On the day Jesus returns, everybody will bow and bend their knees to him. Despite what may be happening today, we have great hope for the future. Well, this is not because we deserve it, but because of your great love, your grace, which was clearly put on display when your Son willingly gave himself up to forgive us of our sin. Father, we do not always know why we suffer, but we do know that sin is not always the cause of suffering. And we ask that you would help us in these times to love you and to hold on to you tighter. Help us to recognize that suffering is an opportunity to glorify you. In a group this big, Lord, it is likely that some of us are going through very tough times and we pray for those people now. Give them the wisdom of Job, the wisdom that fears you and respects your plans and thoughts and knows that all things work together for the good of those who love you. Help us not to think of how people can be friends to us, but how we can be friends to others and point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him we pray. Amen.